ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that may be upsetting for some listeners. If you or someone you know needs help, Lifeline is always there for you on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. My guest today has spent many years right up close to loss and grief. Wendy Liu trained as a social worker and her first placement as a young woman was in palliative care. And she felt right away that she had an affinity for being with people at the end of their lives and for having the kind of conversations about death that many of us shy away from. Wendy then began working as a forensic counsellor, supporting families who had lost someone in a way that meant the state coroner was involved. So fatal accidents, suicides, homicide and the ambiguous loss of a missing person. She now works in private practice as a grief and trauma counsellor, helping people navigate the emotions that come with loss. Hi, Wendy. Hello to you, Sarah. When you hear yourself introduced like that, Wendy, are you surprised by how your working life has panned out? When I hear it in that sequence, I guess I am. Um, It's something that happened almost naturally. So it felt, you know, you used the word affinity and it was certainly something of that. I felt really drawn to the area and to the field. And I think many of us who come into this area are people who have had their own personal experiences of loss and ones that have felt significant and ones in which they've been able to either address or feel that they can then help others. And I think for me that that was certainly my own path. And so hearing that all come together and be consolidated like that, yes, it is a A strange thing to hear, but also it is my career. It is what it is that I've been most passionate about. Do you think of yourself as a a kind of dark or sombre person? Oh, far, far from that. I think, in fact, I'm actually really buoyant and playful and really quite silly. And I think that bears itself out both in my personal life, but also in my therapy rooms. I think most people would probably think about grief counselling as something that is really sombre. Um, there's often despair and there's often anguish in the room, which of course there is. But actually immersed in all of that is also moments of light relief. And I think that's really important as well. You know, there's something about the way that a conversation about death and about dying should also be a conversation about life and living and about the lightness of what that can be as well. You spent seven years as a forensic counsellor. What Mm. does that mean? What's that role entail? I mean, it is quite a role. It really is. It's such an incredibly unusual um, job to have. So, as you mentioned, any time that there is a sudden and unexpected or an unnatural death, that death is reported to the coroner. And the coroner's responsibility is to find out the identity of the person and approximately the time and the date of death, as well as the medical and the circumstances of that death. And to that end, I worked in the health facility that was responsible for finding the medical cause of death. So I worked alongside doctors and mortuary technicians and staff and alongside a range of my own peers who were forensic counsellors, who were social workers. We supported families who were desperate to understand what happened to this person, what did they die from. So the doctors and the mortuary staff would perform autopsies, um, medical examinations, and as forensic counsellors, our role was to support families, so to provide information about the process at a time when it was incredibly distressing and traumatic, to be able to provide causes of death as best as we could and explain what that was, and then also to be present when families came to view the person who had died. So either as a family, as, you know, as friends, as neighbours, as work colleagues, whoever it is that um, was there that was approved, in essence, by the, by the next of kin. And also to be present when police were present to um, facilitate identifications of the person, to establish the identity of that person who had died. As you, as you describe it, it is such a huge role. What did you understand as the most important aspect of it, of, of what was the really core of why you were there? It's clear why the doctors are there, why the mortuary technicians. Mm-hmm. What were you there for? If I can say it in two words, I think it would be both being compassionate and informed. And I think it required, you know, the coalescence of both, that you could give something of yourself that was a sense of being present, being kind, being able to be able to tolerate the huge expressions of grief and trauma, but in a way that was able to be 
guiding somebody through that process. So to be able to make something that was so incredibly disturbing, be able to be contained within information that might, may have been about the description of what it was that they're about to see, the room that they're about to see, the person is, how that person looked, and to do so in a way that was really as calm as composed, but really human. I think that humanity, you cannot do that job without being humane. What would you say, Wendy, when you met a family or a loved one at the door? How would you begin that conversation? It would often be, I mean, certainly they need to know who it is that I am and what it is that I'm doing there. But one of the things that I would often um, start by is really letting them know that this is all at their pace, you know, that they're, we're really aware of the circumstances of which and that right now we're here to spend time with the person that they're here to visit the person that they love, but sometimes also the person that they may have had a really complicated relationship with. And I think that's one of the things to emphasise, that it's not just in grief that we lose somebody that we love. We can lose somebody that we actually had really ambiguous relationships with. It weren't, they weren't neat and they weren't loving, but actually they were filled with some levels of resentment or ambiguity. Um, and for that to be okay, I think one of the things that we would acknowledge in that moment is it's okay to be whatever it is that you turn up with, right? Um, and so really providing a clear description, a clear description of what it is that's about to happen, the process. At that time, we would talk about, for example, any findings that had um, emerged from the examination. We would provide an explanation about the room and what it is that they're about to see, and then also offer choices about whether or not we wanted to go in with them, if they wanted us to stay, if they wanted some time alone, if they wanted us to speak to anybody else and support them. Why is that important to give a, a description of the room, say, before someone enters? I think for all of us, our imaginations are limitless, aren't they? You know, we can have thousands and millions of scenarios. You know, we can go down a path that we don't know where it might end. But in actual fact, there's only one reality. And so when it is that you explain something in the way that it's about to happen, I think it can contain people. It can actually really situate people in that moment. Does that extend to, to the state of the body that they're going to, be, going to be looking at? How much detail would you give? We would scaffold that. So it would be a measured description beginning with a general description of any injuries that they might see, anything that might be really obvious. And also there are examples where we might have covered up a particular part of the body and we would explain why. Depending on what people were okay to hear and that's, you know, that point, point about checking in, we would also then provide more details. For some families, they certainly wanted to know everything and see everything and that's okay too. For others, it was enough to know that there were some injuries at this place and we've covered that up. Would you like anything more about that? and that for people to make that decision themselves. How do you understand why someone would want to see the, the injuries or want to see the mark of an accident mm. on, on someone who's died? Because I think what death does and what grief does is it makes something that is so, in our everyday lives, you know, intangible and far away, it brings it up close and in a way that we may not have ever, ever encountered, and it can feel unreal. And so there's some research that's been done, one person being Jane Moore, who talks about seeing injuries and seeing a body can make something that feels unreal and seem completely out look and be real. And I think that really goes to that, that aspect of grief that's so important, which is ex about accepting over time the reality of what's happened. And I think f to see something, if you can, if you can tolerate, and it's not about pushing yourself, it's not an endurance, but if you can... It can be important to be able to witness what it is that happened. What kind of things would you observe when families went in to the body? All manner of things, the full range and scope and spectrum, I think, of human experiences. Are. Um, I think for some, you know, the shock, the pure shock and not the disbelief about this is the person that I saw walk out of my door this day who is no longer here. There'll be collapses at the door. There'll be people that were wailing and, and shrieking and, you know, sounds of human suffering that I don't think many of us would ever hear in our lifetimes, let alone expect to come out of our own mouths. Um, but then it can also be that over time there would be conversations about this person that was both of their death but also of their life. And this is all something that can happen within the scope of an hour. It can also be that there were 
moments where families came together or were pulled apart, where there were, and I have seen, you know, conflict in the room, but I've also seen people huddle together, including children, and have incredible, powerful experience of love and connection in this most, you know, painful of experiences too. So the full gamut, and that could be by the same person over a space of minutes. Sydney is, of course, this wonderful multicultural place. Did different cultural groups tend to behave differently in that space? In a generalised sense, I definitely um, saw that and experienced that. Um, Over time, we certainly, and I certainly met with lots of families that are from Polynesian backgrounds where there was something about having lots of people in the room, including children, which I think for most of us might seem strange, might seem... Um, potentially, I don't know, harmful to children. I think that might be one of the the ideas that we have is that children shouldn't see or be part of this. But in fact, what I witnessed, for for example, some Tongan family that I can remember is seeing very young children, babies, as well as adolescents and children all in the room together. And for there to be curiosity and for there to be, you know, jostling and kids fighting in the background and adults trying to discipline them and then bringing them back and forth between each other and up to close and personal with the person who's died. And there's something, I think, of that that makes it incredibly real. You know, there's something about the interaction that would have been there in life that's also pervading in death, right? There's this family unity, this sense that this is what happens and we're all part of it. And I think that's a very strong model um, that those families have, um, have shown as well to their children. What do you remember about the first autopsy that you went to, Wendy? I remember that it happened very quickly after I arrived in in the role. I think it was within the second day by the second day. Um, I remember, and this was when the um, forensic medicine uh, facility was based in Glebe. And I remember seeing it was the body of a woman, um, the circumstances of which I don't necessarily remember anymore, but I do remember seeing that she was on the autopsy table and seeing that there had been the medical procedure of opening up her body. Um, And in doing so, I could see just this, I can't describe it any way else, but a cacophony of colours that were just astounding to me because they represented and reminded me of things such as sunsets and sunrise with, you know, big shows of yellows and oranges and reds and even as I speak now I can close my eyes to it and see it and in that moment I think I recognized that I could do this because what I saw instead of just for example the horror or the despair of what I you know of of this woman's death and what she left behind I could see something about just the incredible machinery and miracle of how our bodies are put together these soft bodies actually aren't they they're pliable soft bodies and actually how it is that they carry us through a lifetime. And they're incredible. They're made up of so many components. And here they are, full of colour, full of purpose, and still here. So you could appreciate the wonder of that right from right from the beginning of your time as a forensic counsellor, but you would have seen bodies in all kind mm. of terrible states from all awful reasons of trauma, would those, those, those terrible images be in your mind when you closed your eyes at night, say? No, and I can say that with hand, literal hand on heart as I, I, I speak with you. No, and I think part of that is that I do have a natural buoyancy. You know, there is something about the way that I am. One of my good friends talks about the fact that I've won the neurochemical lottery, you know, and I think that in part <laughs> speaks to some of what ha- is happening for me. But another reason I think this is that I can see it in context. You know, I know for that person that death has come and that the end is, you know, there's an ending. And so what I see when I see a body or when I used to see a body is that there are, and I remember somebody saying this to me early on in my career, that, you know, we die and live in very creative ways. And I think I saw that. And I don't mean any disrespect in saying that. What I really do mean to to emphasise is that there is something miraculous about the ways that we live and that we die. And I saw that in all its different manifestations. And so for me, having, you know, come to work with real sense of purpose, I really felt that in my work. I think I could be present, I could be really with people and with including the person that's died in the work that I do, with the people that I work with, with this sort of shared sense of purpose, and it seemed to be enough. That seemed to be enough to make it okay for me. 
Did that regular exposure to corpses change your sense of life or, or how you thought about the way you wanted to live? I think it enhanced the way that I thought about life. I think I've always, because of an early bereavement myself, the death of my father when I was young, I think I've always had a very you know, keen sense about what life is and how important it is and how fragile it is. But from forensic medicine, I think what it certainly did do was emphasise just how, you know, how, uh, how random it could be that on any given day, you know, it wasn't a guarantee that I would be sitting here talking to you today, that there could be a multitude of things that have, could have befallen any of us. They're not lessons that have been wasted on me, you know. Somebody has died, but from that, alongside the pain of that, I think I've also recognised that living is so precious and it's wild. I suppose in that role, Wendy, you would have been seeing so many people in the city who died by suicide. Mm. What what were those experiences like? Did they have a different quality to them than the other traumatic losses? I think there is something about suicide that is so... How do I explain this? Even as I said that word, I think I stepped back a little in, in my posture and I think... What is so difficult when, for example, even now as I meet families after a suicide is there is something that is inextricably bound up in a suicide that is both the person who has killed themselves, who's done this to themselves, but is also in some ways the victim of the act. So bound in that is that dual inextricable sort of knot. And I hear and see that conflict both in the act itself but also in the people that remain. And I think for that that sense of what can I can only describe as what would have been despair or some that sort of deep anguish for that to be the answer, for that to be the only way that I can see that this might stop for me. I think there's something that as any human being that should have some profound impact, effect yeah. on us. Huh? That, that should hurt us collectively. There should be something about that. What about the people who were brought in to the morgue but who had no one to mourn or mm. identify them? Was your role then to be a kind of witness to, to those lives? Did you see it like that? I think we all did. I think when I recall the people that I worked with, my colleagues um, who worked in the mortuary, there was certainly, an, and it's hard to convey the level of respect and dedication that I, that I saw in my day-to-day -day work when I worked there that people took inordinate amounts of care and really often took beyond the role, made an effort to make sure that, for example, what you've just described, people in circumstances where they may have died alone, have been found after a long period of time, where there were no next of kins. There were efforts made to not only locate next of kin by police and by people that I worked with, but also to ensure that there was some level of respect and humanity that was accorded to that person. And the lengths to which people, I know, you know, some of which I can't sort of openly talk about, but the lengths to which people would, would go to in order to ensure that that was given its due dignity. I will continue and always be incredibly um, proud to have been part of. There is this respect as you describe mm. it and deep care but you know I think Wendy it's often it's often ambulance workers and and ER nurses who have the wildest craziest senses of humour I think that must mm. go along with the the territory of being up close to death that kind of wicked sense of humour absolutely uh, emerges was that a part of of your life as a forensic counsellor too? I think that should have been possibly part of the job description before you <laughs> applied right like and I think we, uh, I don't know I hope everybody, anybody that I've worked with who might be listening to this would, would um, nod their heads in agreement. It was a quirky bunch of people that I worked with, you know, and people who were and could not be, I think, anything but for the most part themselves in that role because it strips you back. But in doing so, what you find is you find that life is, <laughs> life is not only something that is random and oftentimes hard to understand and unknowable, but it all can also feel absurd. You know, how it is that we hear doing this on any given day and the next day, something else might happen. But there is an absurdity about life and there is something to be found that is a lightness. And I think that's what we're often looking for amidst the depth and darkness of life, that we're also looking for some brevity and we're looking for some, some levity rather, but we're looking for some, some light relief. And I think that comes out in humour. We need to deflect. What jokes did the staff make about the trolleys in the morgue, Wendy? <laughs> 
the trolleys. <laughs> um, so every person who comes into the mortuary is assigned, um, amongst other things, a trolley number, which is a way to ensure that we have, you know, a continuity of care. And between some of us, we would talk about which trolley and the placement of that trolley and where it would be in the, in the mortuary fridge that would work best for us. So that would be, um, yeah, that would be a way that we would claim our spot before our own inevitable deaths. <laughs> I'm hoping I don't have to use it necessarily. Not yet. I will, you know, maybe at some stage, but not yet. You've mentioned, Winnie, that you, you've experienced the loss of your father mm. when you were a child. How was that talked about or marked in, in your family? What do you remember about how his passing was um, acknowledged by your family? Mm. I think this goes to the heart of why it is that I'm in this, in this role. Um, my father died when I was seven and he died after a really short illness. Um, he was 48 at the time, so very young himself. And the response in my family was for that to be closed down. And I think that was something that was both cultural and of its time. I'm Chinese in heritage. And I think there's something about my mother who is incredibly stoic. You know, she's one of, to, to date, she's one of the most resilient people that I know. And we all do grief in the way that we can, you know. Suffering is something that we all have to somehow bear. But I think the way in which we did it as a family, both myself, my brother and my mother, was that we had this sense of having to close it down. So we didn't talk about it very often. But as a child, I think we have a natural curiosity. And myself, I was very inquisitive. So I found that I wanted to understand and I would go to literature and I would be playfully enacting, you know, death. But I would also become very, very interested in what happens. And I found at a very young age that I was actually very attuned to older adults. And so I had two incredible grandmothers and I was always sort of in their presence and very much um, wanting to understand more about life and death. And I think having that experience that was both personal within my family, but also social and of its time, really led me to, to be here. And of course, in order to be here and to also support people, I need to do so in a way that I've addressed I've, as much as I can, I've actually been able to be with my own grief. And now I can be of service to others by putting aside what it is that's happened to me. If I do need to bring it up, it's in a way that is an ethically done way. You know, ethical self-disclosure would be key here. But for the most part, I'm here in service of the people that I'm now supporting and not of myself, not just of myself. As a, as a little seven-year-old, do you remember understanding the finality of death when, when your father passed away? Did it then take time for you to really comprehend what that meant in practice, do you think? I think I had an experience um, that was maybe akin to some of the things that are happening for people now in this COVID era, which is I saw my father, I saw that he was sick, but there wasn't a lot of understanding about the context in which he was sick. And I hadn't seen him regularly while he was um, initially in hospital and then in a nursing home. And what that meant was I think I had a disjointed sense of somebody who was here one moment, but then not. And I think, you know, as human beings, we go to search for people. We have a virtual map of somebody in our minds. You know, we know where they are or where they should be. And I think as a child, I didn't have that. I, all of a sudden, my virtual map didn't quite accord to reality. So I think I did try and make sense of, is this real? Is this true? Is this forever? And over time, I think you realise as a child that somebody isn't coming back. I haven't seen them for a long time. And I think this goes to the heart of why it is important for us to be able to answer in simple, factual ways, you know, in age-appropriate ways, children's questions about death and dying and grief, because they will have them themselves. You began very early to have those questions and that curiosity. When you began working as still a young woman with with people in palliative care, were you surprised by how often people didn't want to talk about what was happening? No, because I think that speaks most of, well, you know, that speaks to most of us. I think most of us don't want to have this conversation that you and I are having, for example. No, I don't think I'm surprised by. Um, I think it speaks to a much more broader a broader experience that we have, a more collective experience of death as being something that is in the future, if at all, you know, and it's something to put away and it's something that's secretive and hidden and it's taboo. I think as a young woman, what I was surprised by was actually people 
who do want to talk about it. And of course, my job isn't to push people to encourage or pressure. It's to be present if they do wish for that conversation to happen. And I think the conditions in which those conversations can often develop are ones in which you sit there with curiosity and not authority. You know, that's a stance that I continue to hold in my practice. You know, I come with curiosity. And when you have a curious and present and inviting and warm way of being in a conversation with each other, I think that can really open up and people know it's okay to come here with you. It's okay to stay here and explore. When there were people bringing fear to their conversations with you or fear being a strong component in Mm. their experience, what would you say in that moment or how could you help someone handle that? I think we don't really solve fear. You know, I don't think it's about, for example, finding a way out of fear. I think fear is understandable and tantamount to the circumstances in which we're dying. I think instead what we can do, and I think this is maybe a way in which we support people in general, is that we can be present to, we can accompany in and witness witness that with somebody. And it's not a solution. I think that's, you know, for some people that might be a disappointment to hear, you know. But when it is that we are in in tune with somebody in their emotional and nervous systems, we can find a place that we may meet each other and share that experience. And I think in that moment, that's when, for example, some of that sharing of fear, some of that sharing of the anguish can be a way to be seen, to be witnessed, and to to help acknowledge something which is so otherwise enormous and difficult for others to be with. And I think that is pretty much all you might be able to do, rather than, for example, try and solve it. Podcast, broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Wendy, your job description now is specialist grief counsellor. What kind of losses do people come to see you about? The range, the full range of what death and the ways in which people die. I think that's the the range of um, losses that I meet with. For the most part, I work with people where there's been a, a death-related loss. Um, so where there's been accidents, the death of a child, um, homicides, suicides, overdoses. I also support um, families where a person is missing and that ambiguous loss, as we call it. So a full range of human experiences of loss. And what are some of the ways that grief plays out? I guess we might assume that it's it's sadness or almost mm. a, a heaviness like depression, mm-hmm. but grief is is not only limited to those sort of heavier emotions, is it? When I meet people, particularly if it's their first significant encounter with grief, I think most of us come to grief thinking that it's about sadness. Um, that it's about yearning. And in fact, um, when I first introduce myself to people, I talk about that grief is one of many things and it can be both physical, it can be the way that we feel the heaviness in our bodies, the lack of sleep, how we're waking up and feeling restless and agitated. It can certainly be that emotional loss, how it is that we feel despair and anguish and torment, how it is that we feel guilt, and guilt is something we don't often talk about but is prevalent, how it is that people are talking about a wish to die, that this is too painful for me to live. 
there's also a cognitive part to this. There's a neurolog neurological aspect to this, and there's certainly emerging research to show that our grieving brains, they operate differently from our pre-grieving brains. Different areas light up, different areas shut down. Our concentration is disturbed. And people talk to me all the time about this brain fog, and it's real. And then there's also that spiritual aspect of grief, you know, what it means when life is no longer the one that I expected, when my world is shattered. And so grief is many things, and it's not neat, and it's not linear, and it's not, it's not in the ways that we might see it as, you know, the five stages. We commonly talk about the five stages of denial and anger, and we talk about all the way through to acceptance. And it's not that, it's not that neat passage. And I think about that five stages of grief as being something that is more a description rather than a prescription, you know. These are some of the experiences that we will likely go through, but not in that order. Can it be helpful, I wonder, to someone who's in that initial shock of loss to have a bit of a roadmap to say mm. that it is likely that your feelings will shift over time in this way or this may change? I guess that can be part of what's so overwhelming about grief is, mm. is the feeling this is, this is what I'll be experiencing for Forever. the rest of my life. Forever, huh? I think, you know, I, it's not uncommon for people to ask me, how long is this going to last for? Like, how long am I going to feel this for? It's, it's, it's too painful and it's insufferable. What do you say when someone asks you that? Well, I think, you know, that idea that there is no solution in grief, there's no quick fix in grief. It's not one that's easy to hear, but it's the truth. For some people, there's movement in grief and that can happen over time in a way that they've been surprised by how quickly it is that they might be able to accept the finality of the loss, which is, I think, one of the things that we, over time, you know, is a way for us to, it's almost like a task, you know, a way that we might really begin to reconcile with the finality. This is real. This is what's happened to the person who's died and to me. But for people who might need a roadmap, and for some people they come to me, you know, I, I, I talk about a, a woman who came to me and she is okay for me to talk about this because she laughs about it now. She asked me essentially, you know, like, how do I get through this? Like, I, what's the most efficient way for me to get through this, were her words, you know, like almost like we expected a KPI and we're <laughs> going to hit the KPIs of grief. Unfortunately, I don't think there is. I think it's uniquely to us, unique to us, but it's also universal. And that that paradox that it both happens only to us and it happens to everybody else and us, I think that speaks to why it is that, for example, that roadmap to grief must helpful in some ways, that this is what you can expect, may not always be the way that it happens. I was listening to someone talk about the death of a, a, a loved partner and she was saying that when the partner died, she actually almost had another lease of life, was was mm. sort of feeling wildly adventurous and wanted <laughs> to embrace everything and thought she'd kind of escaped the, 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 the scary, dark, awful, yeah. sobbing into the pillow kind of grief. And I think she used the phrase, it's a debt you have to pay. And she thought yeah. she'd managed to escape it, but that, that debt turned up eventually. What a way to say it, huh? And I think even as you and I look across at each other, we're both nodding our heads. I understand that. And Anybody else that I've seen would understand that. This is, you know, we talk about it as it's almost like a price that you pay for connection and love and bonding. And that price is a huge price. It's massive and it hurts and it's immensely full of pain. But it's also what I hear from people, one that I wouldn't have stepped away from. If Even if I knew what the cost would have been, I will bear this. And I think what can also happen over time is that grief becomes the way that we love. And that can also be complicated, you know, that if I'm not grieving, then I'm not loving. And that's certainly something that I hear in my practice often. That if, for example, amidst the pain, I might have a moment or an hour where I'm distracted and I'm not feeling the intensity of this pain, then the way that I understand that is that I'm not loving. And that sense of relating both love and grief together, I think, in therapy is something that we would be looking at and beginning to actually really explore and over time maybe unravel, unravel some of that knotting because, of course, life and the way in which we live life might also be a way that we express love and the way that we honour. There are all different ways that might be. That must be a, a real bind for someone, particularly if they're fearful that they're not wanting to 
almost betray the person mm. who's died by forming another relationship Absolutely. or having another child. What do you say to people who feel that by loving again, they're betraying the person that they've lost? It's such, it makes such an, a, a, um, a regular appearance in a conversation. And it's one that can happen over time and you know, typically is when, for example, as you mentioned, where there's been the passing of time and I might be thinking about repartnering or I've had another child and what does it mean when I give love to somebody else. One uh, a person that I'm seeing at the moment who is in that very sort of moment where she has just repartnered and there was a long preparation for this. You know, we talked about it a lot in therapy. And one of the things that she already identified early on is that whoever it is that I'm with will have to understand that essentially they're in a relationship with three people, with myself, with my husband and with them, because there's no way that I can disentangle myself from the relationship that I have. He's no longer present, but he's emotionally and psychological here, you know, and somebody will have to be okay with that. It doesn't mean that I will be, you know, they're, they're here all the time. It's just that I may need to take breaks in order for example, to step away for a day on their anniversaries, on the special days that I need to do the thing that I need to do to best honour, feel connected and stay with the person that I've lost. When you work with families uh, who have missing persons mm. in their life, mm. what's particular about the kind of grief that, that comes with that? I mean, you hear that exhale, huh? Because the way in which um, we describe that unfathomable loss is called ambiguous loss, where somebody might be psychologically absent or physically absent and it's not resolved. So in the case of somebody that's missing in action in war, but also in, in the situation of families of missing persons. And I work with an incredible organisation. I mean, she's a one-woman organisation really, Lauren O'Keefe, who runs the Missing Persons Advocacy Network. And what I know from speaking with her and also um, speaking with the families that I've supported is that there is something that is different because what we don't have is we don't have facts. And certainly in deaths that we know have happened, that could also be the case, but particularly in, in deaths or in absences where that person, we don't know where they've gone, we don't know what circumstances that they might have disappeared in. We don't know what they were thinking. We don't know who was there or who wasn't. We don't know if it was involved the actions of somebody else or not. That not knowing is a space that none of us as a species want to occupy. We want for certainty. We want for a coherent narrative of what happened, not least to the person that we love. And not to have that, and not to have that for what could be days and weeks, but not to have that for years. I, I mean, I, I, I work with people in this area, but I can't actually know what that's like. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't know what it's like. You know, I talked about the idea of a virtual map that we have of the people that we know. Imagine if we don't know whether or not they're even alive or dead. And that sense of responsibility that I imagine you can never let go of, the thought that we assume they're dead, but we don't know. Maybe don't they know. need me. Maybe they're Absolutely. maybe they're waiting for me. I mean, that is the most. It, there's a cruelty to that that's different from the 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 loss of grief. Absolutely, and a cruelty. There is a cruelty in grief, isn't there? And there's certainly a cruelty in an ambiguous loss. There's certainly that. And as you said that, when you talked about there's a responsibility that we might continue to feel. I certainly hear and see that. For example, when I work with parents there continues to be a parental responsibility for me to take care of my child, however old that child is. And I can't discharge that. I can't attend to that responsibility. So I worry for them. I worry about what they would have suffered. I worry about whether or not they were thinking about this or not. Whatever it is that our parental sense of responsibility is, it continues after somebody dies. And I think in the instance of where somebody has gone missing, you continue to yearn, to ruminate, to wish, to fret, and it doesn't stop, right? How could that stop? You must witness some extraordinary evolutions of, mm. of someone over the yeah. period of, of after the loss of someone. What kind of changes have you seen people bring about in their lives as a result of, of a terrible loss? Oh, <laughs> I, I say it like that, well, I exhale, exhale it like that because I think in part this goes to my ability to stay in this, in this work, in this field, is that you see people in anguish and torment. 
that you see people at the time of the most intense suffering. But you may also see that person come to a moment, a time when in recognition that this has happened to me and this has happened to the person that I know and love, that I might still be able to be in life with my loss. And that's, I think, an important sort of emphasis is it's not about moving on or about detaching from from grief as we used to think. You know, Freud used to talk about detachment as, as the task of, of mourning. But I think what we understand now is that we continue to find and experience bonds with the person that's died. And in doing so, what I've witnessed over time is something, you know, I'm going to draw on a beautiful line of poetry by William Stafford, and he talked about, I've woven a parachute out of everything broken. And I think that's what I see. I see people in their utmost suffering somehow take what could have been and was their life, um, you know, a safety sort of net, which has been ripped apart and shredded and somehow they've woven something that is still broken but functional out of their life. And to do that, and that though the, these are the people that are amongst us, you know, like every day we meet these people in some ways that might be them being in very quiet contemplation, that might be them not talking about this. But every day amongst us there are people who are weaving parachutes out of everything that's been broken. And that brings me to the the point, I guess, Wendy, that there's the grieving person themselves and Mm -hmm. the loss they're going through. And then there's how that grieving person is being met by the rest of the Mm -hmm. world. How often do you hear stories of people feeling that their grief is being shut down or turned away from by the other people in their lives? All the time. All the time. And I guess I need to preface this by saying that the people that they have that experience with are people with the best of intentions of trying to support somebody who it's painful to watch them in that suffering. But I hear this time and time again. And to some people, you know, that will be, it's it's time for you to move on. At least you still have. Um, Don't you think it's time to sell the house? You know, that sense of advice giving, that sense of I know how you feel because I've been through this, which I think as much, you know, that the person who says that would be wanting to connect with somebody, but what that might also do to the person who receives that in the newness of their pain is that, no, it doesn't speak to me or it's not the same, but my relationship is different, my circumstances are different. So I think that can have the effect of minimising or making somebody feel unseen and unheard. And already, you know, the way I think about grief is it's wild. You know, a client of mine talked about the fact that When you go through grief, it's as if you leave an innocent life behind and you step through a portal. And what you had before is no longer what you have now. You're almost in this desert. And there might be in the far distance other people who are grieving that you can see and you can sort of maybe take a measure of how you're doing. But it's a new land and you don't know how to navigate it. And what you do know over time and what we know through the research is what's really important is that we find people and places to land, you know, a way to orientate And so if we can, with those people that we see in those levels of pain, sometimes we can't even see it, you know, objectively. Sometimes we just know it. Is that we have to be, if we can, present, that it's not instructional, that we're here in our presence, that we might say things such as, I can see your pain. What it is it, you know, what is it like? Ask permission more often than not, right? Is this okay? Is it okay if I talk about them. Is it okay if I share this memory? Like this came up on my feed. It's certainly about asking permission more often than just doing, right? But that doing is also importantly about making sure that we're there consistently. That can be for both support but distraction, you know. And one of the key things, you know, when I'm talking to people around support is that there's a difference between getting support and feeling supported. And so the importance is understanding how do people feel supported ask them this you know like what's the best way if you don't know this yet if it changes you know that you can always come back and let me know if I get it wrong I guess being prepared that it's not going to be a one-off conversation or a one-off solution that it's it's a repeated offer that you're making to someone I mean it's interesting you know I've often interviewed people who have had a terrible loss and then had a second loss Mm. of other relationships, of people who've kind of found that tragedy too much for them to know how to be around, you know, even if it's just sort of neighbours who have stopped coming to say hello at the letterbox or or parents at the school Mm -hmm. gate. It it can almost feel, uh, if it 
a fear of contagion or a fear that yes. people will say the wrong thing. There's a lot of us on those uh, further layers out away from the person who's suffering something terrible that that don't really know how to respond and often turn away out of a fear of that. How, how do you, what do you suggest about that, Wendy, or what do you observe about that? I certainly observe that. Like that, that idea of contagion, I think, is probably a, a good analogy, isn't it? That this could happen to us, that I see this happen to somebody. Oh my goodness, I'm close. This could happen to me. And of course, that brings up all the difficult feelings for us, right? Like as it would, as it should. And what it is that we should do about that, I think in that moment, to really focus in on what it is that's happening for that other person, the person that's in the greater pain. That in the moment that we might, for example, want to step away, it's all that we want to do, that actually there's somebody here that is in suffering. And that sense of suffering is important for us as humans, as a species, to be with. You know, we know that we find safety and security in others, that we can feel so alienated and isolated. People talk to me all the time about the loneliness of grief. And in grief, people are hyper aware and vigilant about others. You know, we're so aware of what people are doing and thinking and doing and saying to us. And everything is so sharp. And so that gesture that we that we demonstrate about crossing the road or avoiding the gaze, that will be seen, that will be taken in, that will be experienced. So in that moment, if we can, to be able to, number one, acknowledge that this is a difficult experience for ourselves, maybe to have even rehearsed this moment for ourselves if we know that it's coming up, but then to step forward, to step forward with a kind gesture, a kind act or a kind word. And it may be that you say, I don't know how to do this. Like, I don't want to get this wrong, but I just wanted to say, I see that this is hard for you and I wonder how I can help you. How I can be with you, and that's also an important emphasis, with, not just for, right? Like, I'm here with you. How do I do this? And as you said, it's a conversation that is ongoing. It's not one that you leave because we change over time, right? What we may need one day is not what we need another. If you were going to counsel a little girl like you were at seven who had lost her dad, Mm -hmm. what would you say to her? I guess I would be wanting to listen to her. I think I would try and understand what it is that she is experiencing and how she understands what has happened. I think um, as children, they need the same thing that adults need. They need to know what's happened and they need to know that there's love and stability and some routine around us. And so... What I would offer that same child is a sense of, hey, it's okay for this to be here between us, that I'm here to listen to this, that between us, you and I, can find some way to maybe put this in context, to understand what this means for you, to give you some ways of handling these immense emotions, and to understand what life might mean from here. Even given your natural buoyancy, (laughs) there must be ways that you need to step outside of the intensity of your, your work, of the conversations that you have with people in grief. Where do you find to do that or how do you do that? It's that well-worn path of nature. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's several things, but certainly you know, nature predominates. Um, I'm an OSHA swimmer. I do that regularly and I do that with a group of people that I just find I can land with, that we can accept each other as we are. And we do so on a, on a sort of a daily basis or we come in and out as we can, right? But I think having people that I connect with in nature is so important. But also... There's something about solitude. You know, I'm very social by nature, but I'm also really private and I'm, I love solitary moments. And so having time to be on my own, to read, to cook, sometimes just to walk around and enjoy what's around me, knowing that this is such a precious moment, right? Like our, our lives are wild and precious and this is one of them. But I think also at the heart of who I am is that I have great connections. I really believe in a connection to not only myself, you know, I generally like who I am and I certainly love who I'm with. And I live, you know, I live with a clear sense of what is important in my life. And that really, I think, acts as a buffer. And all these things, all these, you know, all the wisdom that people share with me, it doesn't go unnoticed, you know. I I certainly take that in and that helps me. Tell me more about your ocean swimming. Have you always been a swimmer? Far from, actually. I've had two knee drownings as a child. Um, no, um, a few years ago, so maybe three or four years ago, I broke um, 
quite seriously actually. I broke my um, tibia and fibula in a in a unusual accident um, on a balance board whilst I was skyping. That was a, a wrong move. Um, but what that meant was that as part of my personal rehabilitation, one of the few things that I could do was to swim. And at that time, I, I, had, I had a fear of water, but I knew that I enjoyed being in water. And over the course of that rehabilitation, I would take myself to the local ocean pool. And then over time, I learned to be in water in a way that felt, while still fearful, because I think we should be fearful of you know, respectful fear of the water, you know, this is nature. It's in a way that feels so immersive. And I think there's something about regulating my breath, about watching the wonder of nature before me by seeing, you know, on the one side, I can see the horizon. On the other side, I see the beauty of what urban life can also look like. Um, And I think that, you know, talking about natural buoyancy, there is something about being immersed and buoyant in water that I've, I just, absolutely crave now. Are you proud of yourself too for overcoming that resistance to being not only in the water but in the ocean swimming? Absolutely, huh? Like what a thing. And I, you know, I know because I do it all the time, it seems almost like something that now feels second nature. But it's an absolute wonder to do. I, I, you know, any person that I swim with will know that I routinely have a little yelp in the ocean because I'm so delighted to be in there that this is life in this moment. And we can all find different ways to do that. We will all find our ways to do that. But for me, it's such an important connection. Can you imagine doing the work you do without having that time in the water, in nature, in that way? I think over time it may, you know, if it shifts out of the water, I think I will find always a sense of movement as best as I can within the confines of my body, the movement as being important. And I think movement is not only of my body, but of my mind, you know, having curiosity and a fluidity of movement, being open to things, being inquisitive. I think that's actually a really important aspect of my work, but of my life is to have movement, to have flow. I very much appreciate you taking a break from the ocean and the big (laughs) conversations that you have with people to talk to us on conversations. Thank you for being my guest. It's been my utmost pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Miyuki Okiranta here from the Earshot podcast. We tell unexpected stories from everyday life. In our latest episode, you'll meet Sasha and Katya, two young Russians who could risk it all just for mentioning the word war, a word that's now banned in Russia. We put it under asterisks on social media or we just refer it as to say that time or when that started. From the very first day the war began, the lives of ordinary Russians changed. I did cry a lot that morning. I thought that the Western countries would do something like destroy Moscow or something. They're two women who want the West to stop speaking for them so they can speak for themselves. Behind all these headlines, there are real people who died, Ukrainian people who are dead, who did not do anything bad in their life. That's Remember Me When the War Is Over on Earshot. Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.